Well, thanks, Tim, uh, for reading that for us. It'd be great to keep that open. We're going to come back to that soon enough in chapter 3 there. We're going to start in chapter 2 a little bit before that. We are, as I said tonight, we are starting our series, the series that will take us through uh, the next four weeks, uh, looking at our vision for next year. And uh, I want to show you why it's important through our message tonight. So I'm going to pray and ask that God would help us. Can I ask, though, and remind you, uh, we have a Q&A at the end, and uh, I really like questions. And so if you've got questions on the way through, you might like to jot them down on the back of your Caring Connect card, uh, or you might just like to have a very good memory. I've heard that works too, and I'll be be looking forward to hearing them uh, once we're concluded. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you're the God who loves and has sent his son to die for his church. Father, I thank you that you know us here at New Life in Oran Park. And I thank you, Father, that by your Holy Spirit, you are present tonight. We ask, Father, that you would take this ancient word and help it to live here in our hearts. Father, challenge and change us, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, question, particularly for people under the age of 18. All right, okay. Got your attention? Okay. I want you to tell me, what animal is this? Well, that's a good answer from someone at the back. Uh, Well done, Owen. Tasmanian Titan. Now, for the rest of you guys, do you know what its proper name is? Thylacine. Good answer from someone slightly over the age demographic, but good nonetheless. Uh, The thylacine, that's the name of the Tasmanian tiger. Uh, Does anyone have any idea roughly when the last one died? Has anyone got a, a guess? Sorry? It's still alive. Thank you, Paul. Okay. So the, the rumour this week was that somebody has recently seen a, uh, a thylacine, the Tasmanian tiger, alive in the bush in Tasmania. And as I said this morning, there's enough bush in Tasmania for me to believe that they're hiding anything down there. It's a very big place. But the last recorded thylacine died in, any ideas? Yep, yep, some of those are roughly right. Okay, it's 1936. Uh, that the last one in captivity, anyway, died. So it's currently what? What do we call it, kids, when they've all died out? It's right, it's extinct. Absolutely, it's extinct. Well, that's an animal that's extinct. What if the church was extinct? What if we were the last church? There was only one church left in the whole world. There's a, a great quote that says that Christianity is only ever one generation away from extinction. Christianity is only ever one generation away from extinction. This makes sense, doesn't it? Um, If you believe in Jesus, but you don't tell anyone else, and collectively everybody else does the same thing, guess what? Christianity stops when the last one of us here tonight dies. That would be very sad, but that's that's the way Christianity is all the time. It's only ever one generation away from extinction. Well, what's the picture like in Australia? What's the picture like in Australia? Does anyone know the percentage of Christians in Australia according to the last census? Anyone got a guess? Sorry? 20% is higher than that. 30? Higher than 30. 80 is too high. Here's the number. The number is apparently, according to the census, 52.2% of Australians in the privacy of their own home told the Census Bureau that they were Christians of some kind. That's just pretty amazing, isn't it? Now, what do you reckon the percentage of those that go to church on a Sunday is? 
five, six, you guys are roughly right. The, uh, the, best, the best stats that I could find, because most people don't put that on their census form, the, uh, the, the, the best uh, estimate that I could find, counting church attendance as going once a month, was 8%. 8% of the Australian population, of which 52% say that they're Christians, only 8% go at least once a month. Now that's pretty sad, isn't it? In Oran Park, according to the best details I can find, there are 7,280 people. And you guys just lifted that total by coming here tonight. So well done. Uh, that's, that's a fair amount of people. Are they all here tonight? No, we all had to move into the middle to fill the... Uh, to fill, to fill the Here's the thing. What if they all wanted to come to our church because we were the last church left? Would we be able to fit them? We wouldn't, would we? And so the challenge is to think about, there's only one church building in Oran Park. What if it was the last one? What responsibilities would be ours if I said tonight, close the back door, team, come in close for a huddle. We are the last ones left to make sure that Jesus is famous in all the world. We'd have to think, wouldn't we? It'd be pretty serious if I was looking at you guys and said, you guys have to help us get the message out. So if we think about being the last one, then it actually helps us think for a little bit, what are we outsourcing to other people at the moment? What are we relying on other people to do to get the good news out? I I guess we're probably outsourcing mission to some extent, aren't we? Gee, I hope somebody is telling their friends and neighbours about Jesus. I mean, I'm getting around to it, but I hope somebody else is telling them. Or or what about uh, serving? I mean, I'm really thankful for these guys up front. I'm looking forward to supper later. I guess it'll magically happen, won't it? Have we outsourced serving? Or or what about our kids and youth? Are we trusting that Oran Park or Scripture, are are they doing the job of passing on the good news of Jesus? Or if I say to parents, are you personally in your home passing on the good news? What about the money? The lights are on. Somebody must have paid a bill here somewhere. Who, Who does that? I hope somebody is being really generous in our church. So that, well, so that the minister up the front gets paid. It's interesting, isn't it, to think what have we outsourced when it comes to running our church? Now, fortunately, on the balance, we're not actually the last people left. We're not on our own. Uh, At least in the Anglican Diocese, there are 270 other Anglican churches from the Hawkesbury all the way down to Nara. 270. That's a big number, isn't it? And then we've got our friends at Cobbity down the road. Our friends at Hope up there, over the hill, Harrington Park. These guys, even just Anglicans, really close to us, helping the good news of Jesus be proclaimed. Then we've got Norwest, our friends up at Borkham Hills, who partner with us in our Kids Day Camp and support us in prayer and finances. We have the Refuge Baptist Church. Don't worry about there's only one building. We've got another church in Oran Park. Praise God for them. Uh, We work with them to do scripture uh, in the school, uh, which we're very thankful for. We've got Oran Park Anglican College, making the good news of Jesus known down the road there, fantastically. And at the other demographic end, just across the road here, is Anglicare, where Jeff is regularly speaking the good news about Jesus, along with a bunch of our own faithful parishioners who are making the good news of Jesus known there. So we're not on our own. Praise God for that. But you know what? It's not going to be easy to follow Jesus in the future. And in fact, I want us to think about what happens when the temperature rises on us as Christians. It's already rising, isn't it? Do you guys feel the pressure of naming Jesus where you are? It gets harder and harder all the time, doesn't it? 
and our media doesn't help. I don't know if you noticed this week that our Archbishop was in the paper for his comments from Synod. What they said was that the Archbishop had asked everybody who was LGBTQI to leave the church. I want to tell you that that was wrong. It was maliciously wrong. They deliberately misheard him. What the Archbishop said was, the other bishops in the Anglican Church around Australia, who have made pledges before God to hang on to the Bible, to run the church like the Anglican Church has always been run, are diverting away from that. They're trying to say things that aren't in the Bible and aren't in our prayer book and aren't in the things that we believe is an Anglican church. And what the Archbishop said was, you need to leave us. We don't have to leave. We're the Reformed Anglican Evangelical Church. As you do these weird things, bishops, you should leave, not us. And so the papers deliberately twisted the words of the Archbishop. Now, we should expect that more and more. We should expect that more and more. And so I want us to think tonight, what happens when the temperature rises? Even though we're not the last church, how will we be faithful with what God has entrusted to us? And so our vision for next year is that we need to be very serious about doing this, about growing and maturing apprentices to Jesus. Each one of us needs to pick up our responsibility to be made more and more like our Saviour Jesus. And in order to kick that off tonight, we're going to look at the book of Revelation, and in particular, the letter to the churches there. Now, you guys know my overview of the Bible. You've seen this before. Uh, there's the Old Testament here, New Testament here, from creation to new creation. And the book of Revelation is parked right up the end here at the back of your Bibles, when Jesus will return as judge, and God will make all things new. That's when Revelation happens. I just want to tell you a couple of quick things about Revelation. First of all, Revelation was written to a church that was being persecuted. It was written to a church that was being persecuted. There was a Roman emperor at the time who was killing Christians. So it was written in a time of persecution. But if any of you have read the book of Revelation, you'll know it's a pretty weird book, isn't it? And so it needs some interpretation. And I've got a picture of a Picasso up there, right? It could be a bowl of fruit, it could be a woman, or maybe somebody's face, but you need some interpretation to understand what's going on. It's the same with the book of Revelation. But Revelation is actually a very simple book. There's two words that you can use to summarize the whole book. I think I've told you guys. Do you remember? It's very close. The answer is Jesus wins. What's the book of Revelation about? If you don't know anything else about the book of Revelation, understand this. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. He will be victorious in the end. Well, that's the book of Revelation. And we're diving into this ancient Roman Empire. There's the map up there. And we're going to go into this area just here, which is where the seven churches are. If we go in a little bit tighter and a little bit tighter again, they're in the province of Asia in modern Turkey. And we're going to start by looking at the first two of the seven churches that Paul, uh, sorry, that John uh, wrote down the Revelation to. So the first one is a place called Ephesus. And Ephesus is the place that Paul planned his outreach for the whole region. So Paul hung out in Ephesus here, and the good news of Jesus went throughout the whole province of Asia, including to a little church over here. Does anyone know where that was? Just down from Laodicea? Colossae, the place that we just spent a term looking at the letter to. So Colossians, their 
message of new life came from Paul's time in Ephesus. So there's a great church there. What we're going to see is uh, there's a revelation from Jesus to each of these churches, and they have a structure. And we're going to find out something about Jesus, something about what he knows about these churches and their situation. So let's start with who Jesus is at the start of this little passage here. Come with me to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And you're like, what? All right, here's what's going on. Jesus is holding the seven stars. The seven stars are standing for the seven churches. So the churches are held in Jesus' hands. And he's walking between the lampstands because the church is supposed to be the light to the world, right? And so the churches are symbolized by lampstands. And so who's Jesus? He's the one who holds his church and he's the one who is walking in the midst of his church. Well, let's see what he knows about this church in Ephesus. Have a look with me at verses uh, 2 to 3. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. This is a great church. Jesus knows that they have an energetic and a lasting ministry. Tick. He knows that they have faithful discernment. They're testing the people to find out whether they're speaking the truth. We could do some of that in the Anglican church at the moment. right? Who's telling the truth? Right? This is a church that does that. And that they have endured in the face of opposition. So it's been hard and they've stuck strong. What a great church. But there is a situation here, a reason that the risen Jesus needs to speak to them. Have a look with me at verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. They've left their first love. Now, I've said across the day, not the first person that you met in primary school and fell in love with. That's not mistaking your first love. That's not what he's talking about. What it's saying is, when they've forsaken their first love, what it means is they've forsaken Jesus. They have all this wonderful energy, and yet they lack love. Now, you might think, big deal. They've got their doctrine right. They're working hard. Why does it matter whether they've lost their love for Jesus? Do you guys remember 1 Corinthians 13? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am merely a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Yeah? It gets read in weddings a lot, but if you know 1 Corinthians 13, what it says is you can have faith that will move mountains, but if you have not love, you are nothing. Nothing. It's such a devastating thing to say. So when Jesus says you're faithful in all these things, but you lack love, it's not a small thing. It's a devastating indictment against them. And so they are in danger, he says, of having their lampstand removed from amongst the other lampstands. That's a terrifying prospect. And so I've got a little symbol for this church. I'm going to call them the robots, right? They're busily at work, but they're heartless on the inside. Busily at work, but heartless on the inside. And what's the challenge? Well, if we have a look at verses 5 and 6, we see this. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. 
If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. See, the challenge is, if we're busy Christians, right? And I know a stack of you are. If we're busy, if we're doing lots for Jesus, the question is, we need to ask how well we know Jesus. If you're being busy for Jesus, how well do you know Jesus? And secondly, do we have a personal faith that overflows into service? What I mean by that, have you guys ever heard this turn of phrase, God has no grandchildren? Have you heard this? God has no grandchildren. You're either his child or you're not. The fact that your parents go to church doesn't make you a Christian. Are you with me? God has no grandchildren. He only has children. Does your faith personally overflow in service to God? Or are you relying on somebody else's faith? Today, the church in Ephesus is gone. It's gone because the town itself is gone. The the bay that they were on has silted up and there's no town there anymore. There's another town five minutes further up the road. It's 99% Muslim and only one church struggles to survive there. At the end of each of these sections, there's a promise I want you to see what the promise is here. It's it's supposed to encourage us to cling on to Jesus. Have a look at the promise in verse 7. Whoever has ears. Now stop, just check. Has anyone here got ears? Good. See some hands and I also see ears. So that's good. Guess who this is speaking to? It's you, right? Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. What what does this mean? Well, instead of robotic service that's in danger of falling, here is the promise of eternal fellowship. Do, Do you remember the Garden of Eden? Remember the Garden of Eden? It talks about God walking in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve, face to face fellowship. And so what God's offering them is, if you trust me, if you're victorious, I will give you fellowship with me. Fellowship that lasts forever. Don't be heartless. Seek fellowship with me that lasts forever. Well, there's a second church. This church is in a place called Smyrna. It's also on the bay. It's a a, a port town. And Jesus speaks to them. Have a look at who Jesus is at the start of this little account of Smyrna. Look at verse 8. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Who's Jesus here? He's the Alpha and the Omega, baby. You remember that? He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And he's the one who died and came to life again. Jesus is awesome in the letter to Smyrna. Have a listen to what he knows about the church. Have a look at verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet... You are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. See, what does Jesus know about this church? Well, he knows about their afflictions. That's the hard things that are happening to them. He knows about their poverty. He knows they don't have any money left. He knows that there are charges against them that are false. They're slanderous charges. And then he says something extraordinary. He says he knows that they are rich. How can they be rich when they're broke? Well, it's spiritual riches. 
This is a church that loves and has held on to Jesus in the face of persecution. Their situation is tough. Have a listen to what Jesus will say to them in verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Now, guys, it's funny, isn't it? Some of us want a word from the Lord, don't we? Like, God, just speak to me. Tell me, what's your will for me? And here, the risen Jesus is speaking to a church, and the word of prophecy is riches and great cars and good holidays and happy families. No. He says, some of you who have already suffered will be put in jail. Some of you who have suffered and been put in jail will be put to death. That's the word that Jesus has for them. But it's a word wrapped in hope. It's a word wrapped in hope. You see, persecution and death lie ahead. That's what's in the future for this church. And in fact, even 60 years later, this church in Smyrna is still having people killed in it. Do you remember I told you a little while ago about Polycarp? The 86-year-old bishop who was put to death, he said, Jesus has been faithful to me my whole life. Why would I betray him now? And he was murdered, martyred at the age of 86 in Smyrna. Isn't that interesting? So this persecution is going to last. What's this church like? I'm calling them the lioness, right? They're fierce and they're strong and there's more trouble coming for them. What's the challenge here? Well, have a look at verse 10. They get told that it's coming. I want to ask us, will we be faithful for Jesus tomorrow on Monday, right? Wherever you go, at church, at school, uh, in your social group, in your family, will you be faithful to Jesus tomorrow? I hope you will be. Will you be faithful in your family? Will they know you're a Christian? Will they hear you stand up for Jesus? And church, I I pray it never comes to this, but this little passage here challenges us. Will we be faithful to death? Should it come to us, would you personally know Jesus, love Jesus so much that you would be prepared to die for him? See, today in Smyrna, this town is a town of four million. It's got a different name, but it's a town of four million. It's been occupied since before the time of this letter, more than 2,000 years. But in this town, in the middle of a Muslim-majority country, there are 12 churches that have survived to this day. Praise God, hey? This was a group of people who did stand strong and continue to stand strong for Jesus. Well, what's his promise to them? His promise is in verse 11. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Did did you hear what he said there? He didn't say your martyrdom will be easy. The first death, no problems. It won't be a problem. He said, don't worry, the second death will be fine. You'll get through that, no worries. Well, what's he referring to? There's some awesome words from Jesus in John chapter 5, verse 24. He says this, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has, right now, eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. You see, you will die, but on judgment day you will not die again. You won't be touched by the second death of Judgment Day. We have got that wrapped. And so he says to this church, don't worry about persecution because the second death is beaten. Isn't that that extraordinary? 
take heart, after you die, the second death can't touch you. It's extraordinary that that is actually designed to encourage our hearts, isn't it? Well, what about the third church? The third church is the last church. There are a bunch of other churches in between. You can read them up at home. Imagine that. The last church I want to tell you about is the one in Laodicea. Laodicea is just up the road from Colossae, uh, where we've been looking in this term. This is a rich town. It's a town that was famous for its medicines, for its black wool, and apparently for its tepid water. Uh, Apparently the water had to travel, and when it got there, it was warm. Now, I like it when my uh, glass has not been um, left here for too long, and it's actually still cool. Nicer to drink, right? Their water apparently was tepid. Who is Jesus when he speaks to this church? Have a look. We're in chapter 3 and verse 14. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. So who is Jesus? He is faithful, he is true, and he is the ruler over all. Oh, that's pretty awesome. That's who Jesus is as he speaks to the Laodiceans. What does Jesus know about this church? Well, we're going to see it in verses 15 and following. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. It's a devastating account, isn't it? Here's a church where everybody looks good. The car park is filled with great-looking cars in 2,000 years ago. Uh, They're doing really well. They're a rich church. What does Jesus know? Well, he knows that they're apathetic in their faith. He knows that they're in imminent danger. They're, They're really on the precipice at this point. And he also knows that they have true spiritual poverty. Remember there was a poor church? Do you remember the poor church? That was in Smyrna. And Jesus looked at them despite their ragged clothes, despite the fact that they couldn't maybe pay their mortgage, what did he know about them? He said, you are spiritually rich. Well, here's the opposite. Here's the church that's got all the bling. And Jesus looks at them and he doesn't go, congratulations, you have been really successful. Your wealth proves to me that I love you. He says, you're spiritual pygmies. Your bank balances are large, but your hearts are small. You have true spiritual poverty. Their situation is absolutely dire. Have a look at verses 18 and following. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. See, it's an invitation from God to buy what is good. Buy what is good from God. And and it reminds me of Isaiah 55. In Isaiah 55, you can look it up later, but in Isaiah 55, he says, come to me, buy from me things that will truly satisfy. Why do you spend your money on things that can't satisfy? Has anyone had this experience? You buy something that you really, really think is going to be amazing and then you get it and it breaks. 
or you get it and it's not the life-altering thing that you thought it was. Has anyone had this experience? We know this, don't we? And yet what our world sells us is your satisfaction will be found in purchases. Guys, that is a salt water well that will never satisfy our thirst. You can drink from that all day. It'll make you throw up and it'll make you thirsty and it'll never satisfy you. That's what Jesus is saying. Come and buy real satisfaction from me. Come and find it in me. God is inviting them to choose fellowship or destruction. This is a church that he says is in danger of spitting out of his mouth. It's a very vivid image, isn't it? It's a very vivid vivid image. So what's the challenge? Well, I think the challenge is for us, how, how would we buy things from God? Well, I assume that we would buy into the kingdom by using our worldly wealth for kingdom purposes. Not to build my kingdom, but to build his kingdom. Will we pledge to build the kingdom of God here and not my bank balance? Not my personal wealth, but God's kingdom. Today, the church in Laodicea doesn't exist. Well, it doesn't exist because the town was destroyed in 600 AD. I'm not saying that was the judgment of God, although it did all fall down. But they moved five minutes away and they made another town. As I've said all day, it strikes me as strange. Maybe the Turks don't get it. But I reckon if there was an earthquake five minutes away that destroyed the whole town, probably not safe five minutes further up the road. But anyway, there is a town there. And in that town, there's a half a million people. And here's the tragedy. There are three to four known converts in that town today. How did they do with their wealth? They were utterly consumed by it. There's a promise, a hopeful promise, at the end of this little section to this church. Have a look at verse 21. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what's he saying? Well, he's saying you can rule later with Jesus. You can rule later with Jesus if you stop trying to rule now by wealth and power. Don't settle on your privilege now. Sacrifice it for Jesus and you will rule with him later. Well, how should we respond? What should we do with three ancient churches? What do we see? Well, in Ephesus, we saw a hardworking but heartless church. In Smyrna, we saw a strong church that needed to be stronger still. In Laodicea, we saw a church that was wealthy, but weak as warm water. Well, what, how does that help us? Well, it helps us because if we come 2,000 years into the present, oh, I think as a church, we know hard work, don't we? We know what it is to work hard for Jesus. Whether you're a partner here or not, you know what it is to work hard for Jesus. We see persecution rising, don't we? We feel it and we experience it. And I would suggest, church, tonight, each one of us knows about wealth. We know about wealth. So what should we do? Well, those of us who are working hard for Jesus need to rediscover our first love. We need to love Jesus personally, not outsourcing it to someone else. Me, you, we individually need to love Jesus. As we see persecution rising, we need to love Jesus enough to stand for him. See, it's amazing, isn't it? When we go to our own spaces, when you're on your own, and there's no one else around, 
Who will stand for Jesus? Only the person who personally knows and loves him. I mean, it's good to know that all the rest of us here would be standing if they were next to you. But when you're on your own, it comes down to, do you love Jesus? We need to know him and love him well enough. And when it comes to wealth, I want to encourage you guys to invest in the kingdom before it strangles our faith. Before it strangles our faith. You know the thylacine? Pretty sure it doesn't exist anymore. You know the church of Jesus? Well, here's what I know for sure. Jesus will be victorious. Jesus will be victorious. He's going to return. He's going to return in victory. And my question for us is, we'll be standing with him when he is. When Jesus is returning on clouds of glory, do we run out going, that's my saviour? You guys think I'm nutty, don't you? Will we go, you're my saviour. I I stood for you when everyone else mocked me. Now here you are. You've shown up in person in glorious, risen, unopposable splendour. You're my Lord. And he says, I am your Lord. Come and enter into my rest. Guys, I want you to be standing firm on that day. And I want you to grab as many of your friends and family and get them standing with you. And that is what next year is about. Growing and maturing apprentices. Growing and making apprentices. Why? Because we need to grow you and me in being better apprentices to Jesus. And we need to be maturing them and making them because there are people out here, all 7,820 of them who aren't here tonight, who we need to make apprentices to. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we look forward to the day when you return. We ask that in your mercy that you would help us to be a church that loves you. That you would help us to be a church that stands for you. That you would help us to be a church that uses our wealth to bring honour and glory to you. But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. There's some stuff about churches in Revelation and a little bit about making and maturing apprentices. Uh, Have anyone got any questions for us from what we read? Or you could just have a random question. Happy to hear them. Steve. Yeah. Uh, Just uh, wondering... um, are you then saying that Jesus judges the church? Uh, what evidence would we have from our passage tonight, do you think, Steve? I think there's uh, plenty of evidence. The fact that he's going to remove the lampstand and so on. I'm just thinking um, 1 Peter 4 where it talks about he's going to judge the household of God first. Yeah. And, um, you know... It's a pretty serious thing. Yeah. Um, and I suppose I just want to raise that. Yeah, it's a good question. Subject, uh, will, you know. will Jesus judge the, judge the church? Uh, two things. Uh, it appears that he is watching churches and he knows churches even now. And that's a good thing for us to think about, isn't it? It's particularly poignant for me as I'm about to stand up in front of sin and say, hey, look what God's done in our midst. I'm really thinking about this, right? And so as I hear these three churches, I'm going, what part of that sounds like us? What do we need to be doing better? And that's why I'm really excited about growing and maturing apprentices next year. Because we've got stuff, we've got work we need to do. So yes, I think Jesus looks at his church now and he's not always satisfied. 
Secondly, will he judge Christians in the sense of what he'll do is he'll test their work. It says in 1 Corinthians 3 that there'll be a fire and the fire will judge the quality of each person's work. And if what they have built, what they have built survives, they'll go into glory. Um, but those who the, the, uh, the fire burns up, uh, the, their work, it says they'll still go through, but as those escaping through the flame. So here's what I think. Do we invest in eternal things? The only things that are going to last into eternity is what? People. It's people. It's human souls. So if you're investing in people who come to know, in Je- know Jesus, do you know what? They'll be there in glory, and they will be your reward, and they will be the things that get through the fire. Everything else that you build in this life, whatever it is, gets burned up on Judgment Day. So I want to get there at the end and be able to go, God, in your mercy, you helped me to bring some of these people along because they will be our joy and our crown for all eternity. Great question, Steve. You want to say something in response? There are, there are going to be, for example, in what I know of South Australia, because I've been there, and some places in Western Australia, there will not be, for example, an Anglican church because they've left the Bible and they've left Jesus. Yeah. Uh, the Uniting Church is going to disappear in 20 to 30 years. It'll be gone completely, if not earlier, because they have completely left the Bible and left Christ. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we've got to see this and... We've got massive opportunity to get out there and... Yeah. and um, no, absolutely. And this is this one generation thing. And that's why I'm so thankful for all of you here tonight under the age of 18. I love you guys. I'm delighted that you're here. Keep trusting Jesus. Another question? Yeah, Maria. I don't think it's more of a question, but you said next year we're going to be doing this in 2020. So one of the mm. issues is... I don't know how to use the word persecution, but certainly it's quite difficult about this political correctness and things like that. So part of that training that you're going to grow us as church will be how do we respond to that so that we can still speak about Jesus in a way that glorifies his name without yep. taking on an ugly debate or anything like that. Because that's sometimes where you just have to back off. So, yep. that, Yeah, it's an area for great wisdom, isn't it? And I think we can do better. And we can do a better job of equipping you for the kind of conversations that happen. So I did a little sneaky bit of that tonight with some of you might go into that conversation in the workplace about didn't the bishop say, I mean, didn't the archbishop say everyone needs to leave? Not true. Not true. And I want to equip us better and better to be able to at least say, I think we just need to humbly say, rather than go, I'm going to to put you right. I think we need to say, do you know what? There might be more information if you were interested to find out. And if I can supply you with a link maybe in the newsletter this week where you can read the speech for yourself, then you'll be in a better position to be able to say, if you want to know some more, I can have a better conversation. And I think that's what we want to do more and more, is equip you, church, to have those conversations at the level you choose to. Yeah, it's a good, good, good question. Someone else? One. Uh, when Jesus was on earth, he expressed... His will was the will of the fathers, and that he was subservient to the father's will. Yeah, is he still subservient to the father's will, or is he now operating with all glory and authority and on, at his, in his own will? Uh, it's a fantastic question, Tim. Uh, does Jesus exercise a will different to his father? Is that essentially the question? Uh, 
Uh, yeah, because it feels like the language in Revelations is this is the will of Christ now, and yeah. the, the decision of the Father's not being ignored, but just not not mentioned. I think um, we we see Jesus on earth say, um, "I'm only ever doing what I hear my Father saying." Uh, if we just looked at Jesus, we would see Jesus very often just doing a whole bunch of stuff. But his word to us tells us he's only ever doing what the Father is doing. Okay, so I think in Revelation we see Jesus acting, and we would be tempted to draw the conclusion that he was now doing whatever he wanted to do and I would say instead that we're only seeing the action of Jesus and we wouldn't know other than he told us but he always only ever does what his father says and so my thing would be their hearts and their wills are aligned and so we wouldn't find Jesus going off willy-nilly and then sitting down having a, a dinner, t- dinner time conversation going hey what'd you do today oh I wouldn't have done that I don't think that's on offer because the father and the son always act in alignment and I think that's what Jesus reveals to us on earth. How does that work then with like Philippians where it talks about all authority is now given to Jesus? And, yep, and all... has, been, has been given to Jesus and then everything is placed under his feet. Mm. Um, I think if the implication from that is that the father is placed under the feet of the son, we've got it out of order. Okay? And so when he says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, uh, therefore go and make disciples, who's it given to him by? the Father, and so I don't think the Father gives it to him and then says, I'm going to sit underneath you. What he's going to do is lift the Son up until he reigns over everyone else. I don't think that we find the Father underneath the Son. That would be my observation. And at this point, Tim, I think we may just have lost everyone else in the room. But I'm delighted. (laughs) But I'm delighted. It's a good question. It's a good question. There's one down the front. Peter. I'm sorry, mate? Isn't Jesus the door? In fact, he says he stands at the door and knocks, doesn't he, Peter? You cannot come to God except through the Son. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love that Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. And if I'd been maybe better uh, organized in the way I put my sermon together, I could just say tonight, here's the finish of the message. That'll, that'll be the end. I'm going to sit down now because that was a good moment. Thanks, guys. Love your questions. Great to interact like that. In fact, I'm not going to sit down. I'm going to stand up and do the Karen Connect cards, which is the next thing for us to do. Um, can I 